and whoever followed Jesus and surrendered to the power of the Holy Spirit never regretted it. Never. This is the church. This is what the world needs. God wants to unleash us as his church. He wants to unleash you. He wants to feel the power of his spirit that not only commissions you to his mission, but empowers you to see your life change. And then as well, as we prepare this morning to jump back into the next kind of segment of resurgence, we're going to be in Acts chapter 5. And I'll give you a, a little bit of an overview again of what, what is resurgence. Resurgence is the process that we're walking through that, that on Sunday mornings, there's kind of three elements to it. One is Sunday mornings where we are going through the book of Acts to learn what it means to revisit the past, take hold of the future, go back to the original church that was founded 2,000 years ago, and then ask the question, what is that supposed to look like for us today? The second element is this thing called live, which is kind of working that out in our community groups as we digest what we've learned on Sunday mornings and see how that applies in our life. And then there's a third element. In fact, on your seat as well today, you saw a little card that says on one side it says love. The other side says conversation. Could you grab that? That should be something that you either put on your, on your refrigerator, on your mirror, in your Bible, something as a reminder. Throughout this whole resurgence process, we're actually also walking through a simple step-by-step -step process that helps us to live a life that engages people who don't know Jesus for the sole purpose of building a relationship so that God might show his love through our lives to that person so they might discover Jesus as well. So the last few months we've been a part of this, the first month was finding space when we know we're going to engage people. That means we have to carve time for people. So the first month was saying, what am I going to give up in my schedule to engage people? Last month was prayer. We prayed about, who, God, who are you laying on my heart that you want to engage with in a, in a relationship? And then this month is actually taking the practical step of initiating a conversation with somebody. Now, for some of you who already know the person that you're, you're connecting with, this is an easy thing. For others, maybe that God's put someone in your heart and you're like, I don't even know if I could say hello. It just completely freaks me out. It's the first step, just the first step of building that relationship to see what God will do. So I'll tell you, to, for me, that this is, uh, this is kind of how it's flowed in my life. I've been praying for a number of people. Um, but one in particular, there's, a, there's some neighbors that live directly across us that have been moved in probably about seven, eight months ago. And um, I always try to reach out to our neighbors, but sometimes you maybe have neighbors like this. People just are closed. Anybody have those kind of neighbors? They just seem like they want to be left alone, and so we give them space. So I, I was able to meet the husband one day, just happened to be out coming back from a run, and he was moving his car, and so I talked to him. And That was probably five months ago. I'd never t met his wife, and so we did a garage party, like a lot of people in our church did on, on Wednesday night on, for Halloween, which if you haven't done one, do it. It is the best thing ever. People in your neighborhoods are blown away that you would open your garage and create a hospitable environment to welcome them in. Every year, we have people looking for a house. We remember you last year. We remember pumpkin bars and hot chocolate and coffee and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, the whole thing for me was worth the 10 minutes where my neighbor walked out of her house across the street to say, what in the world are you doing? And she looked and she goes, I should be doing that next year. And then we had this great 10-minute conversation about her life and what she's, why they moved and the transition they've been in. It was the most beautiful 10 minutes of the whole three hours our garage was open because it was a conversation that needed to happen eight months ago, but it took eight months for the door to open in a conversation. So I can continue to pray for them because I know God loves my neighbors and that's why they moved in across the street from Kim and I and, and Jordan. And that's why we're going to continue to invest in them. So think about the person. It may be a neighbor, it may be a coworker, it may be a family member that you're gonna have that conversation with. So we live that, that rhythm of love out in our lives. 
So as I mentioned, we're in Acts chapter 5, and this morning we're, we're going to jump into a passage that seems a little bit curious and almost confusing, and you'll see if you haven't read this passage before as I read it. So kind of the background, we, we, we come through the first four chapters of Acts, and so Jesus tells his followers, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, they're empowered by the Spirit, they speak in tongues, and the, the power comes to them. In the next chapter, you have Peter and John healing a crippled man who's been crippled for years, and then out of that, they defend themselves against the religious leaders, which just infuses courage and boldness into the church. And so they're, they're on fire, and things are growing great for four chapters. And then you get to chapter 5, and it makes you just scratch your head like, what in the world just happened? Because you remember, if you were last week, the end of chapter 4, this beautiful display of generosity that people who had wealth were selling their, their homes or their property, and they were bringing all the money to the apostles and saying, hey, distribute it to anybody who has need. And it actually says in chapter 4 that there was no people who had needs. Just a great thing. And then we get to chapter 5. What's chapter 5? Well, I'm going to read it in a moment. But what chapter 5 is for the church is a course correction. And here's what's true for us, is that when we're following Jesus, every once in a while, we need a course correction because we start to fade off and actually default back to patterns of the past that will get us off track for where God is leading us in the future. That's what we're going to read about in this particular passage. And the thing we're going to talk about is something that we know about, but we don't really take a whole message to talk about it, but it's something that we all know and we've heard. It's the word, it's the term hypocrite. Anybody ever heard that before? And we know from the scriptures that what a hypocrite is, it's actually a Greek actor who would put a mask on their face and be in a play and would be so effective in their ability to act that they could portray something different than who they were in real life. And so if you were a good hypocrite, that means you're a really good actor. The problem is when you translate to that, to our lives, what we end up doing is we end up acting out the people that, the person we think people want to know or we think we should be, and we're never fully the person that we're supposed to be. And when we, that happens, we get into all kinds of trouble because we're trying to portray to people something different. Maybe you're like this. In fact, I've shared this before. But look at this first slide. You should recognize this. This is the great and powerful Oz from Wizard of Oz. The original with some color enhancement. But uh, take a look at that picture. I mean, he is scary. I mean, he's got this scary looking face and teeth. And he's got smoke and fire and some kind of crazy altar in front of him. That would scare me. I don't know about you. Would that scare you? big booming voice and so you're like man i don't want to mess with this guy but then we know as the movie goes on we move from the great and powerful oz to the next picture which is the real wizard of oz he's the old man behind the curtain pulling levers and speaking through a voice modulator and trying to make everybody think that he's something that he's not i want us to see those images because for some of us that's our life we are behind the curtain of our lives, working really hard, pulling levers, and trying to make people think something that's true about us that's not. And because of that, life is absolutely exhausting. And what we'll see today is that we are completely missing the purpose and the mark of what God has for our lives. The simplest understanding of hypocrisy is any attempt that you and I make to take what is false and make it appear to be true. That's what we're going to see in the passage today, and that's what we have to come to grips with in our own life. And with that simple definition, you can raise your hand right now. We are all guilty of being hypocrites, aren't we? At one time or another, we're all guilty of misrepresenting what's going on in our lives. So with that in mind, if you have your Bibles, let me read verse uh, chapter 1, uh, excuse me, chapter 5 down to verse, uh, verse 1 down to verse 11. We covered verses 1 and 2 last week, but remember, people are selling their, their property. They're bringing the money to the apostles to care for the people who are in need. And then we get to chapter 5, which says this. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the profits and brought only a part of it 
and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your, your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men arose and wrapped him up uh, and carried him out and buried him. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, you and I are probably a little bit concerned that we all just admitted that we're hypocrites. This is a crazy story. In fact, if we're reading through, we're like, how does this fit? Why in the world? Everything's going great. Miracles are happening. People are being filled with the Holy Spirit. Generosity is coming forth. And then all of a sudden, God takes two people right out of the midst of the church for something that you and I think is pretty insignificant. But to God, it was very insignificant, or very significant for what they were experiencing. So how do you and I understand what is, what's the truth behind hypocrisy? What's really going on here? Why would God react so strongly to what we and I would perceive as maybe a little white lie? So there's four things that are in the passage I want to begin with. It's the truth behind hypocrisy. Why we have to understand why hypocrisy is such a big deal to God. First one is this. Look at verse 3. Hypocrisy is actually inspired by Satan. So Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Now, I don't think that Peter was saying to Ananias that he was demon-possessed, but I believe Peter was saying, You've been, you have demonic influence and satanic influence in your life that would cause you to think this way, that this would be okay. And that's important for you and I to understand that the very thing that we probably take pretty lightly, like, ah, even if I just misrepresent a little bit or I pretend not to, you know, tell the whole truth, it's not that big of a deal. But actually, to God, so much is because that's the nature of the enemy, is to be dishonest about our identity, about who we are. In fact, it's, it's the nature that he lives under. It's the way he functions. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. It says, And no wonder, for Satan himself, what does he do? He masquerades as an angel of light. What does that mean? It means Satan literally, what is a masquerade? A masquerade is a party that is thrown, and you, everybody wears a mask to create some kind of mystery or deception about who the person really is. So what does Satan do? His MO, the way he functions, is what he masquerades as something he's not. He's not an angel of light. He's an angel of darkness. But he puts on what the, the masquerade or the, the, the mask that says, I'm something different than I am. So this is, this is important to understand because that's when you have that moment in your life where you think about being less than honest about what's going on in your life or trying to portray something different. You need to understand that never comes from God. God never tells you to hide yourself. The enemy always tells you to hide. That's the reaction to our, our sin and our shame that are a result from the original sin. If you go back to, to Genesis chapter 3, it's interesting. So when Adam and Eve, sin enters into the equation for them, and after they, they eat of the fruit, the next phrase in verse 8, this is, this is what we pick up in verse 8. It says, and they heard. This is after sin has come into their lives. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. 
What did they do? They hid. Why? Because there was something about them that knew, they knew they were un, not acceptable to God anymore. At least they perceived that. So what was their reaction? Was we have to hide, we have to cover ourselves. Why? Because we don't want God to see our, our nakedness, for one thing, and the fact that we know that we've done something wrong. So what does that cause us to do? It causes us to run. Do you ever experience that in your life? That something happens and you, your first thing is to run and hide and cover and pretend and put on the mask. Why? Because you don't want anybody to know and somehow in your mind you think you're somehow confusing God. We react to our brokenness by running as far away from the truth as we can. That's a form of hypocrisy. It's like Moses in the Old Testament. When Moses, who's supposed to be the great leader of Israel to lead God's people out of bondage in Egypt, if you know his story... When he's old enough, after being raised in Pharaoh's household, he sees one of the Egyptian oppressors beating up one of his brother, his Jewish brothers. And so what does he do? He reacts, and in anger, he kills the Egyptian and buries him, only to find out that he has been, there's a witness to his crime. And what is Moses' response? He flees. He runs, and he ends up in a place called Midian. Nobody wants to go to Midian. It's a desert. Anybody recall from reading the story how long Moses was hanging out in Midian? 40 years. Do you think, oh, that was part of God's plan? It was his 40 years of preparation? No, I think that was a result of Moses' sin and trying to hide himself from his brokenness. I think God can work faster than 40 years. How about you? So he ran. Do you and I run away when we're dealing with the brokenness inside of us? Because that is what the enemy wants us to do. He wants us to run as far away from God as possible so we don't deal with the brokenness in our life. When all along, the only answer we have to our sin is to run to Jesus. Because he's the one that gave his life on the cross. He's the one that rose from the dead. He's the only one that has power to change our condition. Second thing, look at verses three and four. The truth behind hypocrisy is this, is, is, it is actually lying to God. It's like, oh, I would never lie to God. What is, in verse 3, it says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then again, Peter says, You have not lied to man, but to God. Lying. Now, for most of us, say, Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would never lie. I mean, I might fudge the truth a little bit. I might tell a little white lie, but I, would, I wouldn't lie. But the, the truth is, we all lie. Because what is a lie? A lie is misrepresenting the truth. We're not giving the whole truth. We're, we're misrepresenting what's going on. And that's something that you and I have a tendency to do is that it isn't necessarily that we're telling a whole lie, but we certainly tell, are not telling the whole truth. We misrepresent what's going on. I read a study this week that was done back in, in uh, 2016 from the New York Post. And the, the question, basically, the, the survey figured out, what are the lies that Americans tell all the time? And so there was a long list, but I'm going to just take the top three. The top three lies that we as Americans tell. I'm going to start with three and work my way up to one. So the third biggest lie that we tend to say or to tell in, in our culture, this is 78% of all Americans tell this lie. Ever said this? Sorry, I'm sick. Anybody ever said that before? Oh, yes, we have. You don't want to go to work. You have a, <coughs> a little cough, right? It's much worse than, I mean, much better than you're making it sound like. You want to get out of some appointment or some party or whatever it is. We always say, well, I'm just not feeling well, right? Number two, maybe it's not the sick excuse. Number two, this is 80% of Americans use this. This Tell this little lie. I love this present. <laughs> Appropriate, we're getting towards Christmas, right? Anybody ever want to admit you've said that? And inside you're like, I hate this present. 
This is the last thing that I would want. The problem is, is when you tell that lie, next year you get the same thing. And you got to tell the lie over and over and over and over again until you're honest about it, right? But here's the number one. The number one lie that Americans tell, this is 90% of us, so virtually all of us, is the lie that says this, I'm fine. How many times a day do you tell that lie? Now, I, I think in my life I know it's true that, that we tell that lie for one of two reasons, probably. One is that we really don't want to admit how messed up our life is. We don't want people to really know, so we say, I'm fine. You know, somebody came up to me in between services, like, I don't say I'm fine, but I say, I'm good. Same thing, same difference. <laughs> so what we discover, or we say it, we're fine because we don't want to actually admit that there's a problem because it might require us to change. So if we say fine, then we're somehow excused from any kind of activity or action in our life as a result of our brokenness. So, see, lying is a part of our culture. It's the very thing that the enemy does, and it's the very thing that hypocrisy is when you and I stand before other people or before God and say something that is less than the true truth and misrepresent reality, then what are we doing? We're lying to God. Now, Ananias and Sapphira were under the impression probably that they were misrepresenting to Peter, but Peter's saying, no, 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 it's not just to man, it's to God. Every time you and I misrepresent, we put the mask on, we're actually lying to God. I don't think any of us would say, oh, that's, that's okay. I think it's okay to lie to God. Most of us say, no, that, that's not something I want to do, which leads to the third reality of the truth behind hypocrisy, and that it's this. It is pretending to be something you are not. Verse 4 says, and while it remains unsold, this is what Peter's saying to him, did it not remain your own? And after was it sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? That, that Ananias is trying to be something different. What is he trying to be? He's trying to be like Barnabas. Remember last week? What did Barnabas do? This is when Barnabas enters the equation. Barnabas sells a piece of land, gives all the money to the apostles. So you know that Ananias is watching and saying, man, they gave this guy a new name. His name is Barnabas, son of encouragement. I want that, so I'm going to go sell property, but I want to keep back some for myself. But I'm going to represent, I'm going to be something that I'm not, and I'm going to lay money at the apostles' feet, hoping they'll believe that it's all the money. So what did Ananias and Sapphira want? They wanted, they wanted the reality of generosity without the cost of generosity. They wanted to make it look like they were generous people. Now understand in the passage, there's nothing in the passage that says, even in chapter 4 or chapter 5, that they had to give all of the money. That was not a requirement. It was generosity, and generosity doesn't set an amount. It's from the heart. So they could have said, hey, we're holding back 50% or 40%, but we're going to give this. No harm, no foul. That would have been fine. But they represented that they were giving all of it. So what is hypocrisy? It's when you and I misrepresent and try to be something that we're not. Maybe something that we wish we were, but we can't be that, so we try to make people think this is who we are. That's what was going on in this passage. And I think if you and I would understand that, that what we, the, the, the how of the way we do things is just as important as actually what we do. And so we can't like say, well, you know, it's, it's somehow I'm, I'm, I'm doing the right thing by giving, but it doesn't really matter the way I go out doing it. No, the way they go about doing it was as important as what they were doing. How many times in our life do we come to a place where we don't want people to know who we really are, so we figure out how to be something that we're not? I'll just tell you, as a pastor, I'm an interesting, kind of inter interesting occupation. 
in the church, when, when I meet people outside of our church who are in the body of Christ, when I say I'm a pastor, normally you get a pretty positive response most of the time. So people, they give you a little sense of respect, and, and, uh, and, and they're favorable towards you. Now, when I'm out in the world and I'm talking to somebody who doesn't know Jesus, it's, it's actually, now in our culture, it's quite the opposite. You get a few people who have a little bit of the fear of God left in them from their childhood, and they'll show you some respect. For most people, they will either be completely indifferent and won't understand what you do for a living, or they'll be opposed to what you do for a living. So it's always an interesting dynamic for a pastor to, you know, how do I explain to people what I do? In fact, I have this dialogue with a lot of my pastor friends all the time. In fact, they, some of them have come up with really creative ways to tell people what they do without saying, I'm a pastor. And I just don't buy that. I, I just don't feel that it's right for me to s somehow dance around the issue of what people really want to know what I do. In fact, a few years ago, I was going to a conference with a, a friend of mine, and we were, uh, we were in the same row. We didn't sit next to each other. He was a seat over from me. He was a pastor. I'm a pastor. We're headed to a pastor's conference. And this poor, like, 22, 23-year-old guy sits right between us. I'm like, oh, dude, you're dead. You're surrounded by pastors. I mean, you probably it's the worst seat you've ever picked on a Southwest flight in your life, Right. So he sits down, and so right away, my friend on the other side, he strikes up a conversation. And, I, and, and you know how it happens on a plane, you know, when you sit down, usually you're like, Why are you, where are you going? Are you going home? Are you on business? What do you do for a living? Anybody know that kind of, that's the way it goes. 30 seconds in, what do you do? And so I'm waiting for my pastor, saying, well, I'm a pastor. He pauses, and he says, well, I'm a theologian. And I'm like, theologian? I'm like, yeah, there's theology involved in pastoring, but dude, that's, that's, I'm thinking, and I could tell the guy, he's a 22, 23-year-old, he's like, theologian, what is that? I think pastor would have been easier for him to understand. And he's all, what does the theologian do? He goes, we study God. Oh, as if that helps clear up the whole concept for him. And he goes on for 15, 20 minutes explaining how he's a theologian, never mentioning that, what do you do for a living? I preach, I counsel, I lead a church, that's what I do. He never said any of that. I just study God. I'm like, he turns to me and goes, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. That's what I am. <laughs> And then the conversation shut down very quickly. And he literally put his earbuds in and got his iPad going. I'm like, okay, that's usually the response that I get. But think about that. Maybe it's not your job, the job that you do, but what situations do you find yourself in where you feel like, I can't be who I really am because I don't think people will accept me? So what do you do? You pretend to be something that you're not, which is a denial of who God has created you to be. That's offensive to God. God says, I've skilled you to do this for a living, or I've created you to be this kind of person. And you're saying, it's not good enough. I'm going to misrepresent. I'm going to pretend to be something better than I think that I am, instead of being honest with who you, you actually are. And then there's a fourth, a fourth thing that's the truth behind hypocrisy. That's in verse 9, that hypocrisy is actually testing God. So what does it say in verse 9? It says, Peter said to her, this is talking to Sapphira, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of of the Lord. What's going on is, is this so important. The word test is the same word used in Mark chapter 1 verse 13 to describe the way that the enemy attempted to tempt Jesus. He was testing God. It's the idea of like when a kid comes into a house and sees a dog and goes over the dog and starts picking at the dog, grabbing its ears, playing with it, poking at it, and you know that the kid's trying to instigate something, not realizing that that nice, mild-mannered dog eventually is going to run out of patience, and what is it going to do? It's going to bite. That's the connotation of what's being, it's like, it's poking at God, it's picking at God, thinking, you're not really going to bite here. You're not really, I'm just going to test you, just like the enemy didn't think Jesus was going to bite, and so he tested him. The same thing is true here. What Peter said they were doing is, you're testing God. You're just tempting him to react to your bad behavior, thinking somehow you're okay. 
but obviously the test, they didn't pass the test, they, they failed it miserably. But I want you to think about something for a moment. I think what it, the reality for you and I, what it comes down to is that you and I wouldn't say that we test God, but I think one of the, the criteria that we use to justify our hypocrisy or keeping things at secret or telling less than the truth is not if it's right or wrong. I think we know the difference between right or wrong, but here's kind of what we apply to it. I'm okay as long as I don't get caught. That's, that's really kind of the way it is. If I can get away with it, then somehow I can. In fact, I think all of us have thought this in our life. In one of your worst moments of failure and sin, and you sin and you feel bad, but you think that God's going to come down on you, and no lightning bolt appears out of the sky and kills you on the spot. So part of you thinks, I'm okay. Anybody want to admit you, you felt that? I did. And I think what we take that is that somehow God's like looking the other way. It's not that big of a deal. And so we think, as long as I don't get caught. I remember hearing that for the first time in my life, because in the household that I grew up, it was never about if you got caught. It was whether it was right or wrong. But when one time, I, I shared this before, my friends recruited me to go steal candy from Bill's Emporium because my arm was skinnier than theirs. And my arm could go up halfway up the machine, and I could pull the lever, and it was like a slot machine of candy. And Bill's Emporium had four candy machines, and we had them all marked out. We knew where they were. So we went in, and we worked the machines. The first two through, man, it was boom. All the candy came down. We're piling stuff into our pockets. And then we got to, like, the third machine or so. And I remember I had my hand in the machine, and just as I'm about to pull the lever, here comes an employee. And he walks over, and I'm like, I'm like, there's no way I'm getting out of this. And so he looks at me and goes, well... Just don't get caught. And then he walked away. And I looked at my friends. I'm like, cha-ching! And then all the candy came down. And then we went to the, sh the fourth machine. And I kept thinking in my mind, the employee said, as long as I don't get caught, I can keep doing this until you get home and you meet your mom, a.k.a. the Holy Spirit, who sees the candy pile up in your pants. And she says, what's that? She said, I didn't give you any money. I said, well, he said, if I don't get caught, it's okay. And she goes, that's not the way we live. Obviously, it didn't end well for me. I won't tell you the next part. It's one of those kind of things we would wait till your father gets home, one of those things, yeah. But how many times in our life do we think, yeah, you know what, I, I'm living, and we go on living our lives in sin, and we think we're okay, why? Because nothing bad has happened to us. In this situation, God intersects what's happening in the church to get the church's attention, which helps us to understand something important. If you and I think that it's okay to just, as long as I don't get caught, here's the problem with that mentality. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God doesn't look at you and say, hey, good job of getting away with it. No, he knows. He knows every moment of every day what you and I do. And he knows when we are telling the truth. He knows when we're lying. He knows when we're representing the truth. He knows when we're misrepresenting the truth. He knows everything. So here's the key. Give it up. You think you can fool God, but you can't because he knows. You can fool other people, but you can't fool God. God. So how do we move forward from this? How do we avoid being hypocrites? How do we avoid hypocrisy? Look at verses 5 and 10. Here's the first thing. The first thing is remember the seriousness of God. So verses 5 and 10 kind of parallel each other with both Ananias and then Sapphira's experience. It says, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. And then of, of Sapphira, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Now let's just be honest. Anybody think that's a little harsh? Yeah, you're like, doesn't fit. Are you sure that part is, part is supposed to be in the Bible? Absolutely supposed to be in the Bible, and I'll tell you why. The reason God is reacting so strongly in this context for what's going on here, and he let me, this is just my educated guess, by the way, 
that when, when God took the life of Ananias and Sapphira, it doesn't say that he condemned them to hell. It doesn't say that. I think in his grace, I think he was, he was being gracious to the church to deal with one of the core issues that they had dealt with for centuries, which was hypocrisy. I want you to capture this. This is, this is why God dealt with this. So they needed a course correction. So the Jewish culture, the Jewish religion is based on the law that was given to Moses. But the Jews took the law and then they added to it and they parsed it and they figured out a system where you could live your life on the surface, obeying the law, and you could be completely different on the inside. You could be a hypocrite and still be righteous. And of course, we know that, that that's something that God was distasteful to God and that was something that became a part of his people. And so now here we are in our Bible. We're five chapters in. We're very a short amount of time into the birth of the church, the new expression of God's people in the world. And what creeps in already? Hypocrisy. So God says, no, we're not doing this again. We are not going down the same road that my people have gone down for centuries. And so he intervenes and he removes two people out of the equation to get the attention of the church that says, we are not living this way anymore. And that's why you and I have to understand the seriousness of God when it comes to hypocrisy. God is forgiving, but God doesn't tolerate hypocrisy. He takes it seriously. And here's why. Here's the thing that you and I have to understand about the way God works. God has created a beautiful thing called the body of Christ, the church. Here's the context of the church. We serve a God who sent his son into the world to pay for our sins so that we are no longer called sinners. We're blameless. When we took communion today, I'm in the back praying, saying, God, thank you that as I identify with Jesus, that I am no longer a sinner, that I get the righteousness of Jesus. So before you this morning, I am sin-free, I am blameless. Why? Because the account of Jesus is on me, not my own account. So that's the context. By, and how does that come to us? By grace. It's a free gift that God gives to us. Nothing that I earn. And that, that love and grace that comes to us comes through forgiveness so that we're forgiven so that we can extend forgiveness to other people. This is the context of the church. So God knows that I'm a sinner. He's made a way for me to be free from sin. He's made a way for everybody else to be free from sin. And this is the beauty of the church. That's the context that hypocrisy should not exist in. Why? Because we're all sinners. We're all broken. Why are we lying to each other? Why are we hiding it? None of us is perfect. And the only reason we come together is on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us. No matter how, what level of sin that we're at, it's all the answers the same for all of us. So why in the world would I walk into a context of fellow brothers and sisters and put a mask on to pretend to say I'm more spiritual than I really am? Because here's the key for all of us, and here's the flip side. What if the reason that hypocrisy is still in the church is because we have neglected to make the church a safe place for broken people? That when somebody walks in the door of a church, the last thing they want to do is be honest about their sin because they feel the sting of judgment in the room. What if it's our fault that other people have become hypocrites? They have to take responsibility. But what if somebody has walked into relationship with you and then they reveal their deepest, darkest secrets and then you take a huge step back and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know if I can be your friend. Not if that's the kind of thing that you're involved with. If you read through the Gospels, you will never, ever, ever see Jesus step back from a sinner. Ever. He will never tell them to hide themselves. He will never tell them to be dishonest. He always comes with love and truth. He accepts them and he exposes their sin and then brings forgiveness and acceptance. That's what the church is supposed to be. And for our church, who, what is it? And here's the thing. 
We all have those certain sins that we have struggled tolerating, and usually they're the very sins that we struggle with, and so when somebody else has it, we step back. What if you stepped in? What if someone revealed their deepest, darkest secrets, and you stepped in closer in relationship, and they realized, I don't have to be fake anymore. I can be honest, and the only way you and I get free from sin is when the mask comes off, when we feel safe to un unpack and confess our sin, and then God can bring his forgiveness to us. We're getting a little quiet, so let's move on to the next thing. Two more things of how we avoid hypocrisy. The, the second thing is remember the fear of God. So verses 5 and 11 again, it says in verse 5, great fear came upon all those uh, who heard it. And then again in verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Fear. You and I don't like fear. But this is referring to a fear of God that isn't a fear that causes us to run scared from God but a fear that puts into us a deep respect and reverence and awe for who God is. It's different, and this is important for us to understand. To follow Jesus, to know God, means to actually fear him. Because it's the beauty of a God who is above, who's beyond, who's righteous, who's pure, who's blameless, who can relate to a broken an in, inferior and human being that, that is so far from him, but because he loves us, this reverence for who he is and his, how uh, far above he is, that he can still reach down into our lives. But it's this fear. And so it says what? It's that fear, when first when Ananias dies, uh, fear. When Sapphira dies, fear. Why? Because they're realizing God is serious about this. God is dealing with this. And so there's this sense of, there's a little bit of terror here, but it's not bad terror because it's not causing them to run away from God. And here's the beauty of what happens. If you keep reading through the book of Acts, which you'll continue, you think, man, this, this is going to ruin the whole plan, God. I mean, you can't take two people out like that. People are going to freak out and run from the church. The church grows as a result of this because they know that God is serious. They know that God is real, that God is dealing with something. But I want you and I just to think for a moment, when was the last time personally, at a personal level, you felt a deep sense of fear of God. Just an overwhelming sense of awe, respect, how big he is, how small we are, that we finally got that, that, that the proportion of who we are compared to God right. It's probably about two months, two and a half months ago for me, it was one of my sabbatical days. I was out at the beach just my day to spend alone with Jesus. And one of the things that I've done, not every time that I go out every quarter, but probably every other time, is that I will sit at my favorite beach and I will either read through or I will listen on the Bible app to the entire book of Revelation from, front, from the beginning to the end. Which, by the way, 22 chapters, that book is a revelation that God gave to the Apostle John about what will happen in the future about the reality of Jesus coming and what will unfold. And it's not meant to read chapter by chapter. It's meant to read all together. It's all one complete thing. And that's why so much, there's so much confusion, not that it gives you all the insight, but if you are confused by Revelation, read it all at one time. You'll see the logical progression of what God's doing, but here's what happens to me every single time. I get into some of the chapters, like in the mid-teens, like 14, 15, 16, 17, where the judgment of God is coming on the world, and it's serious stuff. But then you start to make your, your way to chapters 19, 20, 21, and then 22, and you see the return of Jesus and the redemption of mankind and the restoration of all things that gets described in detail at the end of uh, chapter 21 and verse, uh, chapter 22. And as I'm sitting on the beach, every time this happens to me, I just start sobbing 
because I'm overwhelmed with the big picture of what God is doing in human history. And I do this on purpose because the little things that I let get to me every day, the, the issues that I deal with every day, when I sit there and I listen to the Re book of Revelation, those things seem so insignificant to the bigger picture of what God is doing in redeeming people in the world. And there's this sense of, oh, I just sit there and I hide up on a, I get there early enough before the lifeguards get there, and I hide up on a lifeguard stand so nobody can see me. Seriously. So don't come looking for me, okay? Because I just, I literally have that moment with God. I'm just so overwhelmed at how massive and incredible he is and how everything is culminated in Jesus coming again. What is it for you? Maybe you need to sit down and listen to the book of Revelation. Maybe you need some kind of encounter that reminds you of how big God is and that there should be this sense of respect and fear and reverence for who he is, that he takes our sins seriously to the point where he let Jesus choose to come and be human and die for us. That's how serious he takes our sin. That's how serious he takes hypocrisy. And then the final thing is this. In fact, I'll ask the worship team if they'd come and join me uh, slowly, and we're gonna, we're gonna sing the song that we sang earlier, but I'll give it some context. The final thing is this. To avoid hypocrisy, you and I need to remember the people of God. So the, the last verse, verse 11 and it says this summary statement, a great fear came upon the whole church and, and upon all who heard of these things. This is really important. The word church in English, it's the first time we see the word for church that gets used now throughout the rest of the New Testament, which is the word ekklesia, which is the Greek word we use for church. Peter chooses, and, and actually Luke in writing this, he, he chooses the word specifically to refer to the church, ecclesia, which was known in the Greek culture, it wasn't a Christian term, it was the assembly of people. It was the people gathered for a purpose. And so now this takes on a spiritual significance. The ecclesia is the, the gathering of God's people for his purpose. And so what, what Luke writes is that there was great fear. Where? In the entire church. Why? Because one person's hypocrisy didn't just affect them. It affected the entire church. And what would have infected the entire church is if God wouldn't have intersected in this moment and removed Ananias and Sapphira, then the infection of hypocrisy would have made its way into the church and Christianity would have gone the road of every other major religion. It would have become religious. But because God intervenes, the entire church has not hypocrisy. What do they have? Fear, reverence. In fact, the word fear is the exact same word that the Bible in the New Testament writes the word awe. In fact, listen to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and 43, which is, we've already covered this, but look at what it said of God's people. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. We all know kind of that. That's what they did. But look at verse 43. It says, and awe, same word, fear, came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This sense of awe of who God is. That's what God wants for us. What is the cure for hypocrisy? To work harder. That's one thing, maybe. To take the mask off. Yeah, that's another thing. To be honest, that's another thing. But you know what the cure for hypocrisy is? It's the fear of God. It's the fear of a God who knows me. And he knows my flaws. And he knows my challenges. He knows my failures. And because of that, the fear of God puts in me that I can't lie to God. I can't misrepresent what's going on inside of me. I have to be honest. I have to be what is going on in my life. I have to remove the mask. Why? Because I know the God that I fear is also the God who loves me and the God who forgives me. So as we close this morning, we're going to sing the song that we sang earlier. It's called So Will I. 
It's one of my favorite songs. In fact, I've been listening it probably constantly for the last two to three months. If you go on my Spotify account, it's probably got a hundred plays, if not a thousand plays. Just keep playing it over and over again because it's this song that describes the majesty of who God is in his creation and every detail of his creation and how his creation didn't limit him from becoming part of his creation and then reaching in and giving, I love the line, on a hill that you created. The hill that Jesus died on is the hill that he created. The cross that Jesus died on is the tree that he created. That the God of the universe in his incredible fear and awe of who he is becomes human to the point where he loves us. And then I love that line. That a hundred billion failures disappear because of the cross. But then the love of God, every person is the one that God loves. The child that he died for, that he would leave heaven to pursue them, he calls us to pursue the world. It's this journey from creation to the cross to eternity, and that's why in, in these next few months, we're going to sing it again, and the reason I want us to sing it, I'm not trying to recreate something, but I'll tell you, one of the things that I know I feel the sense of awe of who God is, is when I am speechless. And you can ask Kim, that doesn't have, happen very often. I have lots of words. But a couple weeks ago at worship night, we were singing So Will I. I was in the back, back here, and we hit a couple of the verses, and I lost my voice. I physically couldn't sing anymore. I opened my mouth, and nothing came out, and I just started to sob because I was, I was letting the weight of the words settle in on me. And then I opened my eyes, and I looked across the room, and there was something so powerful happening in this space during worship night. I was watching freedom break out across this room. I was watching people just like me who were sobbing as they were singing. No one was looking at anybody else. It was this incredible thing because the fear of God was in this place. The awe of God was coming through that song, and there was this profound sense of God's presence that comes collectively. And so maybe the song that we're going to do, we did it earlier, and you're thinking, man, that song has a lot of words. It does. It doesn't keep going back to a, a verse chorus. For it. it just keeps progressing. If you don't know the song, read the words until you can catch up and start singing. The words will speak volumes about who God is and how amazing He is. So would you pray with me as we prepare to worship Him? Lord Jesus, You are the God of the universe. You're the God over all things. You're the God over creation. But you are also the God of our souls who gave your life so that we could live. And Lord, we need to see and know and experience a sense of awe of who you are. Lord, the early church, they, Lord, they, they were committed to the Bible. They were committed to fellowship. They were committed to prayer. But Lord, in the midst of that, they experienced a steep sense of awe and fear of who you are. So Lord, would you bring that to Antioch? Would you let us capture that for a moment, Lord? Because we know in that moment we can be completely transparent and honest with you and, and completely transparent and honest with each other. We can walk from behind the curtain. We don't have to work so hard to live and pretend, but we can be honest about our sin, bring it into the open, and let you come and bring your forgiveness and your restoration. So Jesus, give us the courage to worship you, to experience awe, and to find freedom from hypocrisy in our life today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand. Let's worship him.